as we uh, deal with this today, we're going to see that God has not left Himself without witness in the hearts of unconverted people. Unconverted people have consciences. We know that Christians have the Holy Spirit, but they also have a conscience. But even fallen and corrupt man, he has thoughts that will accuse him or actually defend him and uh, accordingly. So he uh, sometimes his thoughts can uh, be restless. They can make him very fearful, very afraid. Uh, his uh, thoughts can be very active. And so when one is guilty of some kind of sin, they can be haunted. Matter of fact, if they've done some kind of sin that is uh, really bad, it can haunt them for a long time, maybe forever. So inwardly, a sinner really cannot control or command his thoughts the way that he'd like. and The way that he allows himself to think is usually going to be a very wicked the way that it's going to turn out. And no man can avoid living with himself, with that inward self that he has, in an accusing self, you know, life can become intolerable when that conscience is ever before you. And it just keeps harping at you on something that you have done. So uh, a man can live outwardly in fear, inwardly in fear. And someday, though, that, that fear that he has inward can show outwardly and the consequences of his evil deed can show up can it sin will catch up with you it will show so sin is never never worth the cost it's very pricey and so the conscience is there to let you know that it's a warning and it can keep you from doing something that you wouldn't want to do because of what can happen later so one of the main characters in our text today is Herod. And most people have heard of Herod. He's a glaring example of what happens when one is attracted to truth. To actually be attracted to truth. To like the truth. The truth of even the Gospel. And at the same time, to enjoy sin. How can you do both? Well, that's probably what we all wonder. How come I sin when I really don't want to? You get your Romans 7 thing happening. But this thing that he does is going to haunt him and haunt him. Another key character is John the Baptist in uh, this story. And he brings a confronting truth to this Herod. And the truth is something that uh, John the Baptist is very good at presenting. And he presents it in such a way that John the Baptist, or uh, Herod, doesn't really appreciate it. And neither does his wife, especially her. And for that reason, because he presented the truth, he winds up in prison. And I think we all know what happens after that. But John was not afraid to say, repent. And of course, what's the message? John the Baptist, Jesus have. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And sometimes that repenting can be very specific. And in this case, it definitely was. John exposed the sin of this man Herod. Herod knows that John the Baptist is a righteous man. He's a good man. He's a man of God. And Herod knows that. And that's the reason he has a deep, deep anxiety, a fear. I mean, a terror, a great terror that he has in this. And it couldn't escape him. But the only problem is, is that as he didn't listen to the conscience, there are steps 
where the conscience becomes more and more calloused and hardened till eventually that it becomes dead. A dead conscience. And uh, that's a terrible thing that can happen. We know the Scripture says that their consciences are seared. It's um, calloused over it so much that they really have no conscience about anything anymore. They don't care what happens to anybody else. It's only about themselves. So what we're going to do today is look at a conscience of a man who is awakened by his conscience and he has these steps going on with his conscience, but what happens is that his conscience eventually dies and it causes the soul to be lost. And so that's the procedure of what uh, is going to take place here. This is the development. This is how the conscience can go. And I think it happens to many people today. You've seen it happen. And this is one thing that is uh, it's a scary thing because it is uh, a matter of eternity. So what we want to do is open up our Bibles, if you don't have them open already, or uh, turn on your electronics, right? I was talking to a guy uh, last night, and he said, yeah, it's amazing in his church. You don't hear the ruffling of the pages anymore. People are going like this, and they've got them on their phones. And uh, so, you know, we think of Bibles being all bound, and uh, not necessarily anymore, right? Bibles are in a lot of formats. Praise the Lord. They have their Bibles wherever they go. Okay, starting in uh, verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for his name had become well known. People were saying... John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he is Elijah. And others were saying, he is a prophet. Like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John whom I beheaded has risen. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed. But he used to enjoy listening to him. A strategic day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guest. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. And he swore to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And all the king was very sorry. Yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guest, he was unwilling to refuse her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard about this, they came, took away his body and laid it in a tomb. What a story. This is real. This is true. And so just imagine how this thing is going down. Imagine if you know John the Baptist. Imagine if you were one of the disciples of John the Baptist. 
And for quite some time now, he's been in prison. He's been with Herod. And you're wondering, will he make it out of this prison? Will they let him go or will they kill him there? Can you imagine being a disciple of him? It would be a frightful thing knowing uh, what has happened and how bad Herod is. This is an evil man. Now, we're going to first start with, in verse 14 through 18, this story that anybody can follow. This is a story. You know, when you get into stories, God is good at stories, isn't He? The whole Bible is a story. Everything here is a story. Of course, it's the story of creation, the story of the fall of man and creation, and then the story of redemption, and then finally, the culmination of it all. Of course, we're, we're in that story. And each one of you guys sitting out there are actors. You're in this story that he wrote. And he put you in a place at a certain time, not accidentally, but knowing full well how this story is going to come off and you play a huge part in this grand story of the ages. You ever thought about that? Isn't that incredible? We are actors. only problem is we are broken actors right now. Broken actors on a broken stage. But when Christ comes back, consummate all this when we go into the kingdom, everything will be made fresh and anew and no more sin, no more fallenness. Here we get a really good picture of fallenness. We start with a guilty conscience. So, that's why I say, this is a story I think anybody from age 2 on up can follow this story. I'll not try to make it complicated. Just check it out and see how valuable this can mean to you as you play your part in the story. Now, what, what we need to look at is here is this verse 14. And we're going to run into a little bit of a time element involved. We're going to kind of go back to the future. <laughs> Uh, it, it, there's a different time element happening here from uh, 14 through 16, one section. Then in the 17, he's going to do a flashback. Remember flashbacks? And sometimes you're watching a television show or a movie and you're, you're following right along and all of a sudden they go into this one weird thing. What? What happened? And Carolyn said, that's a flashback. I don't catch on quickly. So we need to know what triggers our present text, also the whole text that we're dealing with. And it's going to be verse 13. As it goes into 14, we left off with verse 13 last week. Okay, so we don't want to be too tricky here. But if we remember from that previous text that the 12 were sent out in pairs, and most people know that story. They've been sent out. Jesus says, okay, now it's uh, up to you guys. You go do it. Get a little bit of practice, rehearsal on this, because one of these days you're going to go out I'm not going to be with you. Uh, That's basically what's happening there. They went out. He gave them authority to do everything that he did. I mean, they cast out demons, they did miracles, they preached the gospel. They did all the things that he did. And the thing is, they're spread out. So they're all over Galilee. And man, are they making an impact now. Remember where Jesus has been, you have a huge crowd, but it's only in one spot. Now he multiplies it, and there they are, they're everywhere. And they're healing people, they go, whoa, he wasn't kidding. He gave me the authority to do this. So, amazing things are happening. Now, that's a transition as we go into this verse 14 and such. So, they're given uh, this authority. The impact is all over Galilee, all over that area. That's where they're at, the Galilean area. And it's causing quite a stir. Well, the stir is going to get to the king, finally. It gets to the common people first and spreads out and gets to this uh, Herod. And uh, he hears about it. Uh, Everybody is saying, wow, this... 
this has to be Elijah. No, it's John the Baptist raised from the dead. He's one of the prophets. Herod goes, what? John the Baptist risen from the dead. Well, what's going on? Okay, yeah, all sorts of miracles happening. Jesus has done it. Everybody knows it's in the authority of Jesus, but now it's spread out even more and they know that these miracles are happening because of Jesus, even through the disciples that it happened. There had never been anything like this explosion of miracles ever on the face of this earth. I mean, this, uh, at this time, was very dark. Uh, the demon possession was incredible. Huge numbers of people uh, were possessed. And now the gospel preaching is happening and these miracles. What a buzz you have in Galilee. Most of the activity that Jesus did was in north, uh, the northern area of Israel and in, in Galilee area. Um, he did spend a little time in Judea, but not a lot. Not a lot of times in the capital city, Jerusalem. You think, well, the temple's there. That's where he did his work, right? Most of it was in Galilee. So, uh, he's up there. They're up there. Boy, the power of Christ is amazing. The impact of Jesus now is multiplied by 12 times as it has done that. And he is becoming well known. It says, and when King Herod heard of it for his name, his name, Jesus' name, they're doing the works of Jesus in his name. He had been doing it. He's well known. And in Luke 7.16, his name had become well known. This is not just another prophet. Now, some of them say, well, he's a prophet. Some say Elijah and such, or he is a prophet. Luke records, he's not just another prophet. He's not another one of those guys. I mean, this guy, I mean, he exceeds them. Who is this guy? Even the twelve. They've been amazed by him. Who is this man that calms the sea? You know, stills the storm. Who can do that? And they were scared out of their wits, weren't they? So we have this kind of thing going. I mean, the buzz is happening. He is the hottest thing happening in Galilee. <laughs> so uh, there's no human explanation. John the Baptist has risen from the dead. Boy, does that ever get the attention of uh, Herod. Why? Well, he's going to explain that. That's why we're going to have to go um, back a little bit in time. Uh, he's come back from the dead. A lot of different notions going on, but I'll tell you what. Herod had a notion, and his notion is this. That's John the Baptist. He's dead. I killed him. I was responsible for killing him. He's come back to life. I know it is. I know it's John the Baptist. Now, it's really not, right? It's not John the Baptist. It's Jesus Christ. But he knew of John the Baptist. He knew the truth that he spoke. He knew how powerful his words were. And so he's thinking, oh no. It's got to be him. That, that's, that's kind of the setting here. Um, he says, he's from the dead, that's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Others are saying he's Elijah, others are saying he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. Now, about Herod. He's thought of as a king. He's really a tetrarch. No big deal. Tetrarch, tetrarch uh, dealing with four. He was... Uh, kind of one-fourth of the leaders. Because at one time, there was a guy by the name of Herod the Great. You remember Herod the Great? Go back to the time of Jesus. You remember the Herod the Great who killed the babies from birth to two years old? A uh, very evil, wicked man. Killed his wives, killed his children, killed anybody that would threaten his 
kingship that he had. I mean, any authority that he had. Anybody who would bring up any kind of uh, problem, well, he'd just kill them. A uh, very disturbed man. Well, now this is his son. Whenever Herod the Great did die, it was divided up now amongst four of them. And this happens to be Herod Antipas. The sons get the inheritance, and now instead of one, it's uh, four parts. A tetrarch. So that's his point. He, uh, he helped the Roman Empire in ruling this area of Israel. And uh, just to tell you about Herod the Great, uh, a little bit more and know why Antipas was uh, a lot like him. Um, there was uh, his own son, Antip- uh, if I can say it right, Antipater, Antipater maybe it's better. Uh, before he died, he killed his son for his own death. He killed all of the Sanhedrin. That's the Supreme Court, folks. <laughs> Think about it. He had them all killed. The 70 ruling elders of Israel. So, this family could be religious. They considered themselves to be Jewish even though they were really half-breeds. They were really descendants of Esau. You remember Esau? Jacob and Esau. Esau didn't get the blessing. Jacob did. That line of Jacob went on through. Well, here we have uh, this Esau family and that's you have Herod. Well, uh, murders, adultery, incest is in the line of this Herod Antipas that we look at today. He took the daughter of Herod's half-brother and her name is Herodias. He took her as a wife. What does that make her? A niece. He also took her as a sister-in-law because his brother, who was a ruler, he took his wife from her and he had her. And so now she's not only a niece, but she's a sister-in-law. And that is really unlawful. That is not cool. And uh, you go to the law. I don't have uh, too much time here as we move on. But in Leviticus 18.16, it will deal with the law. And it will show specifically that you're not to take uh, relatives, and especially that close, as uh, wives. So he seduced her, persuaded her to leave Philip, who was a tetrarch, a half-brother. She became his wife. As far as the Jews are concerned, no, she's just a live-in. That's not a wife. Uh, So that's the case. You get the idea of this guy Herod. Not a nice guy, but Herodias, I think, is even worse. I mean, it all is in the family. And uh, so we have this haunting that's going to come up here. Um, if you look in Matthew 11, 11, we'll get the character of John the Baptist. So we're telling a story, and to get the stories, as the story develops, you, you start learning about characters, right? When you go see a play, you see one character come in, then another one, you start to learn them. Yeah? And it makes it really interesting. Now we have another one that comes in. This John the Baptist, just to show you how important he is, this is stated in Scripture, so it has to be truth, Right? Because Jesus says it. As a matter of fact, He says this is true. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, that means any person that's ever been born, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Now, is that a statement? I mean, this is it. This is the greatest. The greatest man born of women. But he says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And now he's talking about, that's of the Old Testament time period, but as the church um, develops, as uh, we have um, 
like in Acts 2 and where it develops there, what you have, uh, the kingdom of heaven is considered to be now the uh, full-orbed Holy Spirit living in the church, in the individuals in the church. What a man! John the Baptist. A great prophet. The prophet that introduces the prophet of prophets, Jesus Christ. Okay, so... That's a little bit about John the Baptist. He also was a miracle child. He was born of parents that were kind of past the age of having children. That's happened before in Scripture, hasn't it? Of course, we know, we think of Abraham and Sarah and such. Um, He was like an ancient prophet. He dressed, he spoke like Elijah, so he's compared to him quite frequently. In Matthew 3, 7 we see that he was not always the most politest person. Politest? Is there such a word? Sounds pretty good though. Okay, anyway. He would do some things, sometimes he'd say some things that would probably be pretty offensive. And some people would probably say he needs to tone it down, but uh, you remember when the Pharisees came out to see what he was doing? What did he call them? You brood of vipers? Or you snakes? generation of snakes or you sons of snakes I mean that's not too uh, kind and polite but he had to say like what was happening and the way that it really was that's the way that John the Baptist is he preached the word preached it with truth and nothing but truth Herod is frightened if you look in Luke 9 7 Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead. So he heard of all that was happening. He was greatly perplexed. And we'll see that word again in Mark. Uh, Wow. Look in verse 9. Herod said, I myself had John beheaded. He knows. He can't forget it. But who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. He's got to be John the Baptist. Who is this? Who else could it be? So that's, that's the situation we have. There's a buzz, a stir. He's frightened. And it's at this point now, we go to the flashback. We say, what's going on? What, what happened then? Well, if you've heard the story before, you already know. But it shifts gears at this moment from what the disciples had been doing, healing, preaching, of course, what Jesus had already done, and it's causing the stir, and now it says this. Here's the reason why John the Baptist says, this is, uh, uh, Herod says, John the Baptist has been beheaded by me, and he's risen from the dead, he's alive. For Herod himself had sent, had John arrested, and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother, Philip, because he had married her. So it goes back, says, here's what happened. Herod had him arrested. And of course, eventually it shows the death of him. So the conscience of Herod is really troubling him. This is the king. Why? Why? Big deal. He's in control. He can do anything he wants. John the Baptist is haunting him. John the Baptist is dead, but he's still haunting him living on in his mind. So he's unwilling to repent. He has a real fear. He has a real panic, a real terror. Have you ever been there? Have you ever feared on 
something that maybe you've done that is not good. I want to see him. I've got to see him. I want to see him. If this is really John the Baptist, I'm pretty sure it is though. (laughs) What's going to happen out of this? Well, he had an illicit relationship with Herodias, his niece, and his brother's wife. John stepped in, said this is a dreadful sin. You need to repent. This goes against God's law. This is against God's Word. You must repent. This doesn't sit well with the the Tetrarch. Definitely his wife. I think it was a bad day when Herodias and Herod got together. A bad day you put those together. So John, we know, rebuked Herod. He said, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. That's why we'd call this a direct approach. He doesn't hem all around about it. He just says it's unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. How could John be so narrow-minded? He should be more loving. You know, uh, we got to win people to Christ, so therefore whenever somebody is in sin, we shouldn't tell them that they're sinners and what they're doing is wrong. Well, here John the Baptist had to address it. It had to be specific because he thought everything was just fine. John the Baptist is not very loving if he doesn't tell truth. Now, you must mix truth with love, and we were talking about that on our Wednesday night Bible study. But, uh, you know, the, the two go hand in hand. John the Baptist did everything out of love, but he called it the way it was. Otherwise, Herod could keep on going and cover it up, and everything's just fine. Everything's okay, but John the Baptist brought it out. So he kept saying this. Matter of fact, if you uh, see it in Mark and the way the Greek text is set up, it's not that he just said it one time. Um, you know, he probably went around telling people. People knew that their leader was very sinful, a very terrible man, and he probably preached this as uh, you, sh- you know, Herod shouldn't be having Herodias as his wife. The woman belongs to his brother. And uh, this is incest. This is sin. This is evil. It's okay. Everybody needs to know that they're, they're sinners is really what it amounts to, regardless of what it is. In this case, that's what it was. He was a leader of the people, and that made him even more responsible. And so, you know, we have to be careful how we present the Gospel, and we definitely want to get that good news into them, but we must show that regardless of whatever their sin is, finally it comes down to just sin is sin regardless of what it is, and they need Christ. Okay, when John the Baptist says this is wrong, and goes to him personally and tells that, down south they say, okay, preacher, now you have stopped preaching and gone to Midland. You heard that? John the Baptist is now meddling with somebody's business. It was okay to preach, but don't get it personal, right? And the Word of God can do that. It does do that. It convicts. It's a sharper than a two-edged sword. So he was saying it publicly, and he was saying it privately. It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And believe me, it wasn't a one-sentence sermon. I'm sure there was much more in this. He probably gave many points in this sermon that he uh, had given. John was a man with a spine and a conscience. Herod has no spine and has really no conscience when it comes down to it later. Um, So that is 
the guilty conscience. He's guilty. He knows it. Let's go to the stirred conscience. His conscience is now stirred. His wife, she's like a viper. He called uh, John the Baptist who called people vipers, right? She's like a viper. Herod's like a fox. Jesus called him a fox. <laughs> and in another text, uh, that means he knew how to play the game. <laughs> He'd been around. Herod was pretty sharp, pretty smart, even as evil as he was. Uh, Herodias has a grudge, and that weighed on her thoughts constantly. She wanted to get this man out of this world like dead. So she wanted him dead. She wanted to get him murdered. Herod protected John the Baptist. That's interesting that a man who had been convicted so much by John the Baptist still wanted to keep him alive. And that might be one of the reasons why he put him in prison because Herodias might have had it ordered that some people go out and kill him silently. So he's in a protection in a way, protective custody, I guess we could put it. At least as far as Herod is concerned. Anyway, um, she couldn't get him killed while he's in prison. Now, Herod knows that John the Baptist is a good man. And in verse 19, it says, Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. So we covered that. Verse 20, for Herod was afraid of John. He was afraid of him, even though John the Baptist is in prison. Knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. So he's holy and righteous, so Herod just kind of protects him, keeps him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed. Look at this though. This is incredible. But he used to enjoy listening to him. Now, have you ever heard of people who enjoy listening to truth? And yet, they have no thought in their mind to have anything changed in their lives. They just like to hear the gospel and the truth. People sit in church all their lives. They hear the message over and over and nothing ever happens to their lives. Amazing, isn't it? Well, John the Baptist gave a message that stirred him up, that stirred the conscience of Herod. And so when he heard him, he became perplexed, couldn't exactly probably understand what all this was. The Messiah uh, didn't understand this whole message of John the Baptist, uh, the kingdom. Uh, but whatever he's saying is pretty cool. You know, I think uh, Ben Franklin had heard Whitfield preach. And uh, he was amazed at his voice that could cover for literally thousands of yards maybe a mile people could hear him as he preached great revivals over here in America. It's from England. But Ben Franklin did hear him and gave him compliments and, and he sat and talked with Whitfield, but we, as far as we know, nothing ever happened to, to Ben Franklin as far as his salvation was concerned. Quite a wise man, wasn't he? Look at all the inventions, everything that he gave us. But yet... Um, so he was good in a lot of ways, but he was quite perplexed too. Um, anyway, the Messiah, judgment, he doesn't get it. Herod doesn't get it. So I think there's a novelty 
of John the Baptist here, uh, with the way that he's able to deliver a message, the way that he dressed, the way that he ate. And so he finds that interesting, and yet the sphere, his conscience is weighing on him. It's, his conscience is being stirred. Um, he refrains from taking John the Baptist's life when he could have done it so easily. He lived in fear of the man that he had imprisoned. That fear. Now, when we go back to that 14 through 16, when we started out, you can see why he was fearing that. Oh no! Don't tell me. This is this is John the Baptist come back to life. He knows knows exactly what had been going on before. So it seems a little bit like when you say his conscience is coming alive, this sounds good. It looks good. We like the thought that a man is, hey, uh, he's realizing that he's done wrong. The conscience should stir us like that, shouldn't it? It should bother us. Anybody who's comfortable with sin is in a dangerous position. And we say that to the lost. But I also say it to Christians. Christians can't lose their salvation, but I can tell you what. They can get into such a fear that they don't even know if they even belong to, to the Lord anymore. If they are His, they are His. They're His forever. But uh, whenever their conscience is awakened to something, we say, well, thank the Lord they woke up. Where were they headed? What's going on with them? Right? You've known them. So, looks good. Coming alive here. We look at verse 21. A strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. Stop there for a moment. This is a strategic day. We go to a violated conscience. So We've seen that guilty conscience. We've seen a stirred conscience. We see a, a conscience that's actually violated. It's a strategic day. It's a birthday. And... I want to tell you, those kind of birthdays that uh, Herod had would be a would be birthdays that people wouldn't forget. But this is one day that John, or I mean, John Herod would never forget. I mean, this is a birthday of birthdays. Anybody who was anybody was there, and you've seen those magazines where they. Uh, in Hollywood, for instance, the Hollywood magazines, they have the stars and they're going to this party and going to this banquet and this award and whatever, you know, and music stars, actors. And uh, when they have parties, man, they have the real parties. And, of course, all the magazines are telling what um, dresses or what uh, kind of uh, clothes that people wore and they're making all a glamorous thing. Let me tell you, those parties that they go to probably are very rude and unholy. And anything and everything can happen, especially when you get into the late hours. Well, um, Herod throws a party for all the leaders and the socialites. If you're anybody who is something, you're there. And this is the social event of the year. I mean, you are invited to Herod's birthday. Wouldn't you love it? (laughs) No. But these people did. Some people say, and he he was famous for his birthdays in the secular field. Um, His birthday celebrations were more wicked than um, any others. It's recorded that it was called Herodias Deus, which means 
Herod's birthday became a proverb for a wicked, excessive celebration. So what it meant is, as far as the Latin is concerned, or uh, the Romans were concerned, uh, whenever you would say, Herodias Deus, this is an excessive, wicked celebration. It's having a birthday like Herod had. That's what's going on. And that was named after this particular birthday party. What went on there? And I'm, I'm, I'm sure that everyone has to do one above everybody else. Every birthday has to top another birthday or celebration. Or uh, We have a celebration, but it's in, in, in the Lord, right? This is a celebration from the, the worldly side. So he invites to the banquet the, the lords, the military commanders, the leading men of Galilee, the social elite. He has jurisdiction in this area. And uh, there are going to be powerful people there. Some of them are going to be Jews. Some of them are going to be Roman leaders and commanders and such. Um, in Mark 3.6, you have Jewish people who are on the side of Herod and they're known as Herodians. Mark 3.6 talks about that. So, this is the worst that a men's event could possibly get. I say men because it says uh, the lords, the military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. They might have had their wives or whoever with them, but uh, some say this was like a stag party. It was just for men. Uh, This is gluttony. This is drunkenness at its elite. Uh, The lasciviousness that's going on in this party and the conversation, laughter, uh, unrestrained. The temptations are terrible. There are females that are present. Uh, they would invite uh, professional dancers who were um, really ladies of the evening and the prostitutes, and they would come there and dance. What would you get for the king as a birthday present? What would you bring? What could you bring to somebody who has it all? Right? What do you give them? He had everything. How could this event be remembered? Well, Herod's going to come up with an idea and then let somebody else come up with the rest of the idea. Uh, He just can't come up with what um, he could think of. And that's where he ran into trouble here. He has no concern for purity. We've gotten that across, right? But he has no concern for purity for his own daughter. I mean, his own daughter he puts into this position. He's wretched. Purity is not an issue for his life. Never been for generations. Never would be. And he has no desire really to protect her in any sense. Being a daughter. Probably a girl, young, 14, 15, 16, somewhere in that area. And she was going to be doing a dance of shame. uh, A princess in the court would never have done anything like this. But Herod's a little bit different. It's a double shame for a mother to let her daughter dance like this and encourage it. I mean, it's a triple shame. How bad is this? None of us would even imagine this. But you think shame exists really in Herod's family? It's no shame, especially when you have this 
particular time that they're having. It's just outrageous for the daughter of a king to do what she's going to do. So we read back in the text now into verse 22. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, you'll notice Herodias herself, yes, it really um, is Herodias' daughter, came in and danced. She pleased Herod and his dinner guest. And the king said to the girl, Ask for me whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. So, we have an indulgent impulse here. Things are getting a little bit carried away. She comes to this, does an evil dance. Um, Satiation as far as food and beverages are concerned, the alcoholic drink. In she comes, immoral, suggestive, shameless dancing. That's what happens. And she pleases Herod in the most base way. And all the dinner guests. So you got the wine, it's just flowing, all the drunkenness is happening. So there are a lot more things that are happening than just a dance. There are certain times when people become inebriated. The drunkenness happens. People start doing lewd things and it seems to give license to do whatever one wants. You're all uh, familiar with uh, spring vacations. You know, the Easter vacation. It used to be known as Easter. Now they call it spring vacations. Where it's students, high school students, college students. A lot of them go down to Florida. And it's like they're allowed to do anything they want. I mean, anything and everything. It's amazing. At that time, it's okay. But other times of the year, probably not so cool. But at that time, it's okay because not everybody is around. The parents aren't around. Nobody else. So it must be okay to be able to do whatever you want and just let it go. And believe me, that is a terrible thing. And that's what's been going on in our nation. And that's young people. But it happens with older people. When they get away from their own town, they go to a a spot and they're on their own they're in a hotel room who knows what they can do uh, in that city uh, at night time and uh, who knows you can think of all the drinking and drugs and the gambling and on and on and on that they can do and that is the situation we're at in this place that is partying I know it's graphic but that's what this story is God doesn't hold back truth He just shows it in full light and uh, we're seeing this impulse that he has and everybody else has. And the, the girl is used as a pawn for her mother so that John would have his head taken off. What shall I ask for? Right on the top of the list of priorities was John the Baptist's head of the mother. So that's where we're at. We, um, Verse 24, she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? She said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now he's starting to feel really, really bad. Boom. Ooh, I did say whatever you want. Uh, It's wrong to make a promise. Uh, like that what he did that was bad and even more to keep it. He's going to keep this thing. He still has the power even though he made an oath and yeah, he made a promise. And we're talking about a man's life, a godly man. So now his conscience is torn. We look in verse 26, and although the king was very sorry, yet, because of his oaths, 
because of his dinner guest. You ever heard of peer pressure? <laughs> Boy, it's immense, even as being a king. He was unwilling to refuse her. He's going to go ahead. He doesn't want it to happen. He's in genuine grief about this. That's the idea of sorrow here. The king was very sorry. Very grief. Greatly distressed, as it says in some translations. Mightily torn. His conscience is just ripped. And he doesn't want this to happen. And he knew John the Baptist was right. But what are my friends going to be thinking? I already made the promise to my daughter. And everybody got a real kick out of that. And I know they'll like this deal with the head. Things need to get worse and worse, you know, to really have enjoyment. <laughs> what a party, right? That's what's happening. And now he's shaking his head. Oh no. There's nothing I can do but do it. Instead of saying I was wrong, I said a horrible thing. I really didn't mean it. I wasn't thinking, just got caught up in the time, guys. So sorry about that. I can't do that. The dinner guests are all looking at him. And so he was unwilling to refuse her. So I said, okay. You've been in that situation where you didn't want to do something, but people kind of pressured you. And you knew in that situation it might uh, might prove embarrassing to you. So you go ahead and do something that you really didn't want to do, but you'd said it. Well, the king sends an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. He's a king. He can do anything he wants. John Broadus writes this, when the dish was brought with the bleeding head on it, no doubt she took it daintily in her hands lest a drop of blood should stain her gala dress and tripped away to Mother Earth as if bearing her some choice dish of food from the king's table. Now it was not uncommon, Broadus said, to bring the head of one who had been slain to the person who had ordered it to show proof that the command had been obeyed. Uh, you go back to the Roman times when the head of Cicero was brought to uh, Fulvia, the wife of Mark Antony. I know a little bit of this. She spat on it, and drawing out the tongue that had so eloquently opposed and condemned Antony, she pierced it with her hairpin with bitter ridicule. Depravity. How can people even think about doing these things? That's the kind of stuff that goes on when the conscience gets worse and worse and worse. So far, it looks like Herod had a conscience and he has a fear of man more than he has the fear of God. The execution happens. Kill the last of the great prophets, except for Christ. The best of the prophets. John lost his head, but he never lost his conscience, did he? Well, Herod didn't necessarily lose his head, but he lost his conscience. And now we see things go bleak. Very bleak. Verse 29, of course, closes out Mark's account here. When disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. Wow, we have gone all the way to this torn conscience. And as time goes on, we'll see a dead conscience. And that's where things lead. I mean, he was awakened. And he could have done something. And he could have repented. And he heard the message, heard the truth. There are people that hear the truth constantly. 
Here in this country, people have heard the truth about the Gospel of Jesus Christ and the glory of it all, and they spurn it. They make fun of it. They enjoy what they're doing. In the last recorded event, Mark doesn't put, but Luke does, it's about a very chilling reality that happens at the end of Jesus' life. Our Lord. He was sent from a man by the name of Pilate to Herod. This Herod. And let's turn to Luke 23 and let's get a little bit of that account as we get ready to close this out. Luke 23. Verse 6. When Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. Jesus. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, Galilee, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at that time. That's not his city, but he's there because of the feast of the Passover. Jesus is there. Herod is there. Herod's never seen Jesus. Guess what? I want to see him. Now, Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus. I mean, he is just as happy as could be. Why? For he had wanted to see him for a long time. Because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. He wants a show. He wants amusement. And so he thought Jesus might just amuse him and he can laugh and enjoy, have a party right here. And he questioned him at some length. But he answered him nothing. And the chief priests, the scribes, were standing there accusing him vehemently. And Herod, with his soldiers, he couldn't, one on one with Jesus, face to face, of course, he has his soldiers. After treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. Yeah, that's Herod. That's this guy. He finally meets Jesus. You know what? His conscience is nowhere near the vicinity. It's gone. Shut up forever. There's no trace of fear here. No conscience. No spiritual conviction at all. Was there before? Yes. But he never repented. Never wanted to change. He liked the lifestyle that he was in and that's where he felt comfortable. Stood face to face with Christ and more terribly as he stares and looks at Jesus, even though Herod sees nothing in Jesus, really, Christ saw nothing in Herod. It was a death of a soul. And it's possible for a human being to be so jaded that he can stand face to face with Christ and feel nothing. It's so possible that to squash the repeated warnings of conscience that it becomes as a dead conscience. And we wrap this up as most of us here Christians. So what does this mean to me? My conscience is not going to die. I'm a Christian. One thing we want to get out of this if you don't get anything else is be careful how you listen to the Word of God. Pay attention but not only pay attention, but desire to obey it. It's a warning. John the Baptist did it for a long time. 
but we see what happened to hear it. Be careful how you listen to the Word of God. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus has stated that, hasn't He? Be careful how you respond to it. Respond to it with conviction. The message for the unbeliever is that a neglected conscience will suffer a progressive desensitization to God. Desensitizing is what it is. One step after another. After another. After another. And so even Christians can learn from that and say we need to develop a conscience more and more attentive to God's Word. And you do that by reading His Word, desiring to obey it, filling our minds with God's Word and His Spirit. Our conscience must be awakened always, shouldn't it? The Holy Spirit is what convicts us, but it's the conscience that is a gift. And um, every man has that. We don't want to wait for a later time. You remember Felix in the book of Acts? Another leader and Paul was there talking with him and Felix found him very interesting too. I'll have to hear this again. Remember that? And he had a conscience, but it was going downhill too. Just later. You can't wait for later. You want to know why? Because later, one may not have a conscience. Jesus refused to listen to Herod. And so to us, we desire that we be built up in God's Word, in His truth. Let's pray. Father, You are a great God. And what a story You have given us on how things go down as far as uh, the conscience, uh, the way of thinking of what is truth, and then later just living for ourselves in such a debauched way that can't even recognize who You are, what Your Word is. Thank You by Your grace by taking people in this room and converting them from that state, from that status, and becoming attentive and desiring Your Word, desiring to be like the person of Christ and not having the conscience convict, uh, the Holy Spirit convict, and, and not being able to do anything with it. It's Your power that does that. Thank You so much for showing our sin and desiring to turn from that. That is repentance. And so, Lord, if uh, this repenting message that John the Baptist had and Jesus had will make an effect on all of us, anybody in this room that needs to hear this for their own salvation, that it would make an impact on their own lives. Thank You for Your Word, Your truth, Your Spirit. Thank you for your people here as we gather to worship and celebrate you. In Jesus' name, amen.